Thanks for listening to this episode of the First Take Podcast. On this week's show, we discuss an important clinical update in the field of heart failure and new updated labelling for the controversial Alzheimer's drug Aduhelm. We look at recent developments at GlaxoSmithKline and analyse a potential new treatment option in psoriasis. Michael, let's uh, kick off uh, by talking a bit about um, the new data that was, well, the top line data that was announced from Eli Lilly and Boehringer Ingelheim's SGLT2 inhibitor, Jardiance, this week. Um, The two companies announced that the drug has hit its primary endpoint in a phase three study for heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. it previously uh, achieved its goal in a phase three study looking at heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And it's actually approved in that indication in the EU and is pending approval in the US. But this preserved ejection fraction heart failure population um, has been a kind of a a tricky um, indication for drugs to demonstrate a benefit in the past. So this seems like quite, quite a big deal, I would say. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, reduced ejection fraction is is the sort of half of the the market that you know there's there's a fair amount of drugs out there for it. On the preserved ejection fraction side, that's that's the one that's always been a tough nut to crack. Really, nothing has worked. Nothing is proven to work. You know, Entresto is now approved in the indication, but it actually missed the primary endpoint in the big pivotal study that it was tested in. So um, while it's approved and it sounds like based on prescription data, I saw some analyst reports that perhaps is starting to be used. um, I'm sure that this, uh, this, you know, great, the success with, with um, Jardiance is really going to probably catch a lot more eyes. Um, You know, the fact that clearly had success on the top, the primary endpoint, and obviously we don't see the data. We don't know how big the magnitude of benefit is, but just the hitting the primary endpoint is going to be a big thing, and I'm sure it's going to. I'm sure this is going to be a big deal in terms of uh, commercial revenues and, and all that. Yeah, I mean the full data from this study is going to be presented um, at the European Society of Cardiology meeting, um, which takes place next month. So we'll get to see the data then. Um, I mean, speaking to, to to the point you've just made um, about Entresto, which obviously has been approved in the US, and I think that pres- th- those prescription trends that you mentioned probably does speak to the um, you know the unmet need um, in this particular heart failure setting. But speaking to to what you to what you said, Michael, you know, Eli Lilly noted in their press release that um, heart failure. Um, with preserved ejection fraction is the single largest unmet need in cardiovascular medicine. And this is based on prevalence, poor outcomes, and the absence of clinically proven therapies to date. And they also note that if Jardiance was approved in this indication, it would become the first and only clinically proven therapy to improve outcomes for the full spectrum of heart failure patients, regardless of ejection fraction. So 
I mean, I think, you know, based on, on, on the language that they're using um, before we've even seen the data, that, that they obviously do think that this is a, a potentially big deal. Um, you know, and analysts are saying that there's, there's potentially billions of dollars in extra sales attached to, uh, to Jardiance um, as and when it's, it's approved in this indication. Um, it's worth noting that there's another SGLT2 inhibitor, which is a Farziga, which is uh, marketed by AstraZeneca. Um, they're already approved um, in both the EU and the US for the reduced um, ejection uh, fraction indication, and they are actually waiting their own phase three data in the preserved ejection fraction. So hopefully we'll get to We'll get to see that, um, or we'll, we'll certainly get confirmation on a top-line perspective that it's read out positively or negatively um, later this year. Um, it's also, on the final point, I guess, talking on, on this subject, it's worth noting, you know, Eli Lilly seems to be in a in a, in a pretty strong position at the moment. Um, Jardiance obviously looks like it might get a revenue boost. Um, they presented some uh, detailed results for their uh, investigational diabetes drug to Zepatide, which is a first-in-class GIP, GLP-1 receptor agonist at the ADA meeting at the end of last month. That seems to have gone down really well um, within, with investors and analysts and, and, and endocrinologists. We've done our own surveys, and I think that's going to be a game-changing therapy. And then obviously in the very last couple of weeks, you know, we've had this um, sense that actually Eli Lilly uh, could move into the Alzheimer's market by, um, by moving more swiftly than they had previously suggested uh, with their own Alzheimer's drug. And, and they've submitted that to the FDA. And that brings us on nicely to, to the next subject that, that I want to talk about today. Um, we've we've learned a couple of hours ago, in fact, that the FDA has approved new labeling for Biogen and Isize Aduhelm, which is the controversial, um, to, say, to say the least, um, newly approved Alzheimer's drug. And what they've actually done is that they've, they've slightly narrowed the label to focus on patients with mild cognitive impairment, which, um, is in line with the study population that, that Aduhelm was investigated in. Um, you know, what's, what's your take on that, Michael? <laughs> well, it's sort of, it, it, the, the news itself or the move itself is a common sense um, thing. It, I think what, what blows my mind is the fact that it's even necessary. Like I don't, <laughs> I'm, still, I'm still shocked um, with how the whole, decision process went down and, and FDA, you know, basically taking a look at this data set that let's call it mixed at best using a biomarker that is controversial at best and just saying, yes, this is good enough. <laughs> let's approve it and let's give it just this broad label. I just, that, that whole situation is still, um, can't wrap my head around it so the fact that biogen now seems to be have been the one that instigated this whole thing and said like whoa whoa <laughs> i think you gave us more than we actually deserve uh let's 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 uh, tone this down a little bit and you know probably for your good being, being the fda and our good i biogen because you know they're under a lot of pressure too um from from people who are like, you guys are going to bankrupt this, the health system with this uh, Alzheimer's drug. So 
um, the move itself makes makes sense. Um, surprised that it's even necessary, and that you know, I guess we'll we'll see what uh, what it means. I mean, whether this actually will mean anything in practice, you know, remains to be seen. Because you know, doctors, I think, have been saying, well, we're not, you know, we wouldn't be giving this to everybody anyway. Um, but the, the doctors are going to be under so much pressure from patients and patient groups and, uh, you know, caregivers, family, whatever, they would have been under immense pressure to, to give this to just about everybody. Um, so, you know, perhaps at the end of the day, this is the best news for probably the health system, but also doctors. I think that maybe, you know, this takes some of the pressure off them, which is probably a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think you're completely right. I mean, I think that's, that's the general theme is that, you know, physicians i mean because you know the physician checks that we've done the surveys that we've run you know lots lots of neurologists are actually you know very unsure whether the drug should have been approved and and one of the questions we actually asked in in one of our surveys was you know should it have been approved or should it have been approved uh, with maybe a narrower label which it now has and i think it was about four in every ten uh respondents agreed that it you know it probably should be approved should have been approved but with a narrower label so i think in that respect i think we're probably now in a place that we potentially should have been in a month ago i think that's the issue uh i mean i'm not entirely sure my own personal view is i'm not entirely sure this sort of change has really done uh the fda any favors really partly because there's not, not there's not new data that's changing, you know, that's instigated this change with the label. Um, and it kind of contradicts some of the comments that were made by FDA officials a month ago when the when the product was approved, um, which also tie into um, the very kind of public validation of, of, of the sort of beta amyloid hypothesis the idea that these drugs by reducing beta amyloid are, are definitely going to have an impact on sort of cognitive impairment and, and the fda's language was kind of very um supportive of that idea um when i i think you know it's fair to say that that idea is still very much up for debate in some circles so it is definitely one to watch and it's definitely going to be something to watch in relation to um I mean, I think it's a little bit too early to talk about how this might affect other regulatory submissions, but obviously we do know that Eli Lilly um, has submitted their own similar Alzheimer's drug and they're waiting, I believe, to, to see if the FDA are going to accept that. So that's possibly going to be the next uh, kind of a chapter in this ongoing story about Alzheimer's disease that, that, that we're talking about a lot at the moment. Um, let's move on um, just to touch briefly on what's going on at uh, GlaxoSmithKline. Uh, the company recently announced um, a kind of a renewed growth strategy. They've uh, sort of uh, unveiled some aggressive sales targets. They're looking to free up um, some increased capital for pipeline investment. But they've had, uh, I guess, what what you would describe um, on the face of it, some negative news this week, um, with it being confirmed that their head of oncology research and development, Axel Hoos, 
is going to be leaving that role next month to become uh, the CEO at a startup uh, called Scorpion Therapeutics, also focused on oncology, focused on um, sort of so-called undruggable uh, cancer targets. Um, I mean, Michael, it's always it's always very speculative and hard to to to, to talk about, you know, an individual person leaving a company and what impact that's going to have. But I guess it, it's probably not great timing in as far as GSK sort of seems to be sort of trying to put its house in order. And then obviously you have kind of quite a high profile departure like this. It, it, I guess it, it it's not ideal. Yeah, you know, th there's never an ideal time to leave. And, you know, you can always find some <laughs> reason why it should or shouldn't. But like, yeah, you mentioned that GSK is sort of in this midst of, uh, you know, sort of the new strategy for, for their growth coming up over the next decade. Um, and obviously they've been feeling pressure from some activist shareholders um, on that front. So, you know, whether this plays into that or ties into that, who knows? Um, but, you know, they've, they've done some deals recently that, that seem like it could be um, something positive. Um, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, yeah, in terms of that deal making, I mean, obviously, you know, these things, I, I, you know, there's a bit of forward planning. These haven't all kind of, um, you know, evolved in the last couple of weeks. They've obviously been in the pipeline for some time. But, you know, the company's talked about doing deals and then they've done two in quick succession. The most recent one is pretty interesting. Um, it's a deal with a company called Electa. It's from, for some neurodegenerative um, uh, disease, um, monoclonal antibody that Electa is developing. Um, I think the first, I think that, you know, the most advanced asset is, 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 is initially being looked at in um, a certain type of dementia. Um, uh, you know, there's going to be a there's going to be a bit of conversation, I think, around you know, has the whole situation with with Aducanumab or, or Aduhelm as as we've referenced it earlier on, you know, is that going to kind of lead to an acceleration of big pharma licensing deals in the in the sort of neurospace? Uh, I'm not sure you can you can link this deal with Electa to that, um, given the timing. Uh, I think that's definitely going to be something to watch, though, if we do see see more deals of, you know, in this area. Um, I mean, I think from I think from GSK's perspective, it's pretty interesting that uh, I think this might be a sign that they're going to be kind of perhaps a bit sort of disease agnostic in terms of their deal making. If there's, you know, other underlying factors or there's boxes that are ticked by the deals, you know, they've they've really spoken about with this elector deal the fact that um, that company's research is looking at the immune system um, and its role in neurodegenerative diseases. It's looking at sort of human genetics. We're actually potentially going to see some, some biomarker data. I think it's phase two biomarker data for the more advanced elector asset uh, just later this month, actually, at the Alzheimer's Association a sort of scientific meeting. So we might we might sort of relatively quickly get a bit of a better idea of, of how this deal is going to play out for Glaxo. Um, one thing that I would note, uh, I think is interesting. Um, you know, this was a deal that GSK paid $700 million up front for um, in a, in an area that, you know, remains relatively high risk and, and also notable that Electa have retained 
some of the marketing rights, some of the future co-marketing rights in the US market. And I think, you know, we may have spoken about this on a previous podcast, but I think in recent weeks, there's definitely been a handful of big pharma licensing deals where fairly large uh, sums of money um, have been paid in terms of upfront payments. Um, and obviously, one of the other trends that we've sort of seen this year, particularly in the second quarter, is this very marked slowdown in M&A activity. Uh, I mean, we really didn't see much in the way of, of acquisitions in Q2 um, at all. Uh, we had Morphosis buying Constellation. Um, and I think we had Sanofi buying Tidal. Um, but they were both relatively small acquisitions in the grand scheme of things. And so I do wonder if this kind of this this willingness to kind of pay fairly hefty upfront sums to in license, um, you know, promising mid, well, actually at early stage, early to mid stage assets. I think it's something that that, that maybe we we will see more of um, in the future. Certainly seems to be that big pharma is somewhat spooked about doing M and A at the moment. Um, perhaps. Uh, driven in part by those comments that were made um, by the FTC earlier in the year, there does there does seem to be some hesitancy. Um, obviously, in GlaxoSmithKline's case in particular, I think what we've got to consider as well is that they you know they 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 do want to show investors um, that they are you know getting things moving and they're looking to bring in external assets. We know that the CEO has been under a bit of pressure. Um, and I guess a final, you know, final thing to note is it, it will be interesting to see who they who they bring in to um, to replace Axel Who's. I mean, the one thing that Emma Walmsley has, has has done really well since taking over as CEO is 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 getting some pretty high profile hires in for various um, positions on the R and D and sort of commercial side of the business. So uh, that will be interesting to watch as well. Um, Michael, I just wanted to finish off this week. Um, I know you spoke to a, a psoriasis key opinion leader um, earlier in the week about um, UCB's um, uh, bimikizumab, which is an anti-IL-17 monoclonal antibody. Um, it's sort of nearing the market as a treatment for psoriasis. Um, I mean, this isn't a novel drug class there's there's a handful of il-17 um inhibitor mabs on the market already but it sounds like that the the the, the, the kol you spoke to was pretty enthusiastic about this drug um and the idea that it might not just be a kind of a late entrant that kind of picks up niche share it could actually do some some you know some it could be kind of quite disruptive in the market by by the sounds of it yeah, I was surprised he, how how sort of excited he was about um, the the molecule. So it, it just got a positive recommendation from the EMA CHMP over in Europe. So it's going to be on the on the market uh, relatively shortly in market in in the Europe, and it has a PDUFA date here in the US. I think in mid October. Um, so yeah, it's it's like maybe the fourth. I'd say something like fourth or fifth anti-IL-17 antibody that's going to be on the market. But he clearly thinks it's the best in class of the anti-IL-17s just based on the data. And he gave UCB a lot of credit because they ran some 
you know, some pretty aggressive head-to-head -head studies um, with it that basically fleshed out its its profile. So the the data itself, uh, the data profile, the data, you know, the risk-benefit profile, clearly he's excited about that. On the other hand, there is the, you know, the real-world complications of getting this to patients, getting this past payers, um, you know, and that sort of thing. And, you know, he suggested that, you know, that is obviously going to be a, a sticking point. You know, this is a space that's very crowded, not just with IL-17 blockers, but, you know, all sorts of TNF blockers and, and various other um, biologics, mostly, although ducravacitinib from BMS is coming through and could disrupt things relatively shortly. But you know, it's a crowded space, basically. And the, the big... 500-pound um, gorilla in the corner is AbbVie, and their, you know, their embeddedness is the word he used um, with, with contracting um, and moving from Humira to now SkyRizzy. So, you know, that's obviously going to be a complication, and uh, it's something that UCB, whether they have experience with it, you know, I don't know. I assume they they would have brought in some people that that know what they're doing. Uh, it's going to be a, t a tough, um, it's going to be a big hurdle, but if they can do it, it really sounds like they have a drug that has a risk benefit profile that um, could make it, uh, could make it seriously viable in the, in a crowded space, which is pretty impressive. So I guess we'll see, you know, we'll see how it works out in the real world, but uh, something to be, it's an interesting, it was an interesting take um, from the KOL for sure. Okay. Excellent. So if any listeners are interested in that, be sure to um, to look up the story on, on firstwordpharma.com um, and you'll find it with all the other regular um, key opinion leader interviews that we do. Uh, Michael, thanks uh, for joining me this week. Um, it's been a relatively, I was going to say, it's been going to be a relatively quiet week in sort of biopharma this week. Obviously, it was a long and there was a long weekend last weekend in the US, but kind of things have kind of got a bit more interesting today, particularly with the with the Aduham stuff. Um, but I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about when we meet up next week. So again, uh, thanks for joining me, Michael, and uh, to everyone out there, thanks for listening. Cheers.